have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have made the world and everything in it to glorify your name. We confess that the world does not glorify your name as it ought to, that we do not glorify your name as we ought to, that we do not understand you as we ought to. And Lord, this is a cause of frustration among us in in the world. Thank you for sending your son that he would overcome the world, that he would overcome sin and death, trials and tribulations, so that we might too overcome with him. Lord, we praise you this morning that in Christ we have overcome the world. We ask for the preaching this morning, Lord, that you would speak through Alden. Lord, thank you for his preparation. We pray that you would profit that preparation for the sake of your name among us today. Lord, we too ask for the children downstairs who are being taught the word. Lord, we pray for the teachers that they would be filled with your spirit to speak truth and to follow your spirit with the questions that children have, that the little children would come to you today. Lord, we pray for faith for them. We ask for the upcoming school year. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to um, lean into new things. Um, At the start of a new school year, we ask for um, your spirit to fall on these campuses, for for you to make yourself known and for your name to be glorified. We ask that we as a family would welcome newbies into this campus and into this valley. Lord, that um, children in grade schools would also come to know your name this year, that our children who grow up here in Mercy House Kids would speak of the things of you um, in their classrooms this year as well. Lord, we ask that during this service now, uh, wherever we're coming from, whether we have belief or not, Lord, that you would move upon our hearts, that you would reveal yourself to us in ways that we can understand and relate with, and that we would respond to you in faith today. Lord, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Alden, as Tommy just mentioned. This morning, we're actually finishing our sermon series that we've been going through 
this summer, and the sermon series has been on the Upper Room Discourse, as we call it. And that's John chapter 14 um, until chapter 16, all the way through. Um, So as you just heard, our text this morning is chapter 16, verses 25 and 33. I do want to encourage you to open your Bibles. There's some Bibles under your seats so you can follow along with me while I preach the text to you. Um, Normally, I would give an outline at this point to show what the different parts in my mind the passages can be broken up to mean. But I'm not going to do that this time because I think really the whole passage and even the whole Upper Room Discourse culminates in the last sentence of our last verse or the second to last sentence in the last verse. Verse 33. So here's my outline, if you will. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's where we're headed. Pray with me, please. Lord, thank you that we get to do church right now. A lot of people around the world don't have this liberty, so thank you for the privilege it is to be in church, hear your word preached, and sing worship songs with fellow believers. Lord, what a joy that is. Thank you for the sermon series that we've had on the Upper Room Discourse for growing me as your disciple and growing, I'm sure, plenty of us um, from the things that we've learned about you and the things we've grown to love about you in that process. And I ask you, God, now this morning to open our eyes, mine included, of how wonderful you are, God. Um, show, Show us how much better you are than everything else and embolden us knowing that you've overcome the world, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Let's dig in. So verse 25, Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. He's talking to the disciples. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In verse 29, we're going to find that the disciples actually misunderstand him here. They think he's talking about the present moment. But he's not talking about the present moment, is he? Look at what he says in verse 25. The hour is coming. And then verse 26, in that day. So not this day, but in that day, in a future day. So what is the day that he's talking about? When is this going to happen? I'm going to give the answer to that before we dig into the reason for it. But the answer is, this is going to happen when the disciples receive the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Well, let's dig in. First of all, let's look at this um, phrase, figures of speech. Usually, in English, when we say figures of speech, we mean language that isn't literal, like a metaphor or a simile or a hyperbole. But that's not all this Greek word can mean. It also carries the idea of a vague saying or an unclear saying. So it's more than non-literal speech. It's, it's vague, it's unclear is what it is. So in Mark chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, I'll read those in a moment. They'll be on the screens. Jesus says something that's unclear to everybody who hears him, but then afterwards he explains that statement clearly to his disciples, to his immediate followers. Let's read that now. It's on the screen. So he's not with a large crowd anymore. He's alone with the disciples. Verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. He had just given some parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So the thing I want us to notice here is that nobody initially understands the saying. It's vague, it's unclear, but the disciples are privy to an explanation. The others who are outside don't get an explanation. A similar situation happens when John talks about the Holy Spirit. Chapter 14, verse 22, we've heard sermons on these, I know, but I want to highlight them for this reason. 
Judas, not Iscariot, another one of Jesus' disciples, not the betrayer, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? To us and not to the world. Similar to the Mark situation with the parables, right? A few verses later, Jesus responds to him in verse 25. This will be on the screens as well. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So it's the Holy Spirit who's going to teach you, Jesus says, plainly about everything that I've said to you thus far. So they might ask, Jesus, how are you going to give yourself to us but not to the world? Jesus responds, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Jesus, these vague sayings, how are you going to explain them plainly to us? The Holy Spirit is going to teach you. One more case of this in John is in chapter 16 on the slides here, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And so many people have access to Jesus' teachings without understanding. Not everybody. We should do missions. But a lot of people have access to Jesus' teachings without understanding. But it's the disciples of Jesus, that is you and I today if we're Christians, who are granted the privilege of understanding him because he illuminates the, the meaning of these texts to us. One example that we see in the Upper Room Discourse of this playing out is Judas the Betrayer. The Upper Room Discourse is Jesus' last teaching time, and he's particularly clear, actually, in these chapters compared to the rest of his ministry. But then, Judas the Betrayer, do you know he wasn't there at the Upper Room Discourse? Jesus sent him out before he started the Upper Room Discourse in chapter 13, verse 30. Judas never heard it. It was reserved for Jesus' followers and not for those outside. So, that day that Jesus will tell the disciples plainly about the Father, all that to say, that's the day that those disciples get the Holy Spirit. We're privy to that now. They had a different situation because they didn't have it initially and then at Pentecost they had it. But that's, that's the time that Jesus is talking about here when the Holy Spirit comes. That's when he will speak plainly to them. The Spirit will give them understanding. But sometimes, as Christians, we can look at the disciples, even that said, and we can wonder why they're so clueless, can't we? I mean, Matthew chapter 16, verse 22, Peter literally rebukes Jesus. Okay, can you imagine that? Um, no, Jesus, you're wrong. God, I, I'm going to correct you here. I'm Peter. Look, Lord, no, you're wrong. It's like, oh, Peter, take a seat, man. You know who you're talking to? You know? But we can also give these guys some credit at the same time, can't we? Because as Christians today... We have a lot more information than they did. We would probably respond pretty similar, maybe worse. We know the central and fundamental truth that our whole faith and this whole Bible revolves around. That is Jesus' death and resurrection. Let's look at Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 47. Jesus is resurrected by now in this passage. He says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Now, the Hebrew Old Testament was divided into three parts. These are the three parts. This is code for the whole Bible. So the whole Bible must be fulfilled. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. 
And so Jesus is saying in this passage of Luke, hey, look, I've resurrected. By the way, the whole Bible points to me and revolves around me. I'm the key component. It all talks about me. And what else does it do? I accomplish my death and resurrection. That key piece, that linchpin, accomplishes the forgiveness of your sins, he tells them. And so this is the gospel here. Jesus died on the cross, and he took the punishment and the shame of every sin that everyone who would ever believe would ever commit, all of them. He took our punishment and our shame, but that's not all he did either. He also gave us his righteousness. So now, when God looks at us, we're not shameful in God's eyes. We're not guilty in God's eyes. We are honorable, and we are innocent, because God sees us the same way he sees Jesus. That is perfectly so Jesus took our sinfulness on the cross and he gave us his perfection, his righteousness. And now because of that, this is the repentance that Luke talks about here, we're compelled to live our lives for Jesus out of gratitude for all that he's done for us and all he has given. And so that's the gospel. We live our lives for him now as a grateful response. So this passage tells us that the gospel that is Jesus' death and resurrection, are the linchpin of the whole Bible. So for the disciples, though, they don't know that yet in this moment in John 16, do they? So for them, it's like watching a complicated movie for the first time. You don't really understand what's happening. But then for people like us, we've seen the movie before. We've read the Bible before. We understand it. We watch that movie again and again. Now we start picking up on nuances and think, oh, I see how that connects and all that stuff. So that's what it's like for us reading the Bible in light of us having the knowledge but they didn't have that. They didn't understand the story yet. So all that to say, at this moment in John 16, the disciples were missing two crucial things. The first one, the Holy Spirit, who was going to explain everything to them. They didn't have God within them yet. That's big. Number two, they didn't have the information. They didn't really understand how Jesus' death and resurrection worked. They heard these like, vague sayings about it, but they didn't get it. It's no wonder they misunderstood so much. One last thing I just want to mention, since we're talking about as believers now we have an understanding. Sometimes as Christians today, with the Holy Spirit, with knowledge of Jesus' death and resurrection, we still find scripture confusing. We still scratch our heads about it. That's my experience. I'm sure that's yours as well. I just want to encourage you, that is not necessarily a problem. In fact, faithful Christians, I think, can and should be perplexed by scripture, and we should honestly ask, Lord, what does this mean? I don't get it. Help me. Teach me. I had to do that a whole bunch to write this sermon. I think that's right. The apostle Peter gives me affirmation in this. After the resurrection, he, he writes in his New Testament letter, after the resurrection, he has the Holy Spirit. He writes in his divinely inspired New Testament letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Peter is talking about Paul's letters here, so he's talking about other parts of the New Testament. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Straight up, the Bible says that the Bible can be hard to understand. So I hope that's relieving to us. If the apostle Peter found scripture difficult to understand sometimes, I think we should feel free to think that as well. Now there's two, I think there's two main components of reading scripture. There's an academic component, like a heady component, like putting things together, but then a spiritual component of, Lord, what does this mean for me? What are you saying to me? What do you want with me here? And so that academic component, that's like dissecting an argument, connecting theological ideas, all that stuff. But there's also a very necessary spiritual component to reading scripture that we can all experience. 
I think we can often feel overwhelmed. I feel this way. When brilliant people interpret scripture really eloquently and I see it all pieced together, I'm like, oh my goodness, that's awesome. Oh, I'm so overwhelmed. I can't do that. That's great that they can do that. But everyone, I hope this is an encouragement, everyone, no matter how academically oriented or whatever, comes to the Bible as God's fresh living word to them. No matter how confusing the Bible can be, and Peter can relate to you, we can and should always ask God, look, I have my questions about this text. I don't understand. I feel like a lot of people understand more than I do, but even still, what can I get out of this passage right now? Without reading commentaries and looking at sermons online or reading articles, what, what are you trying to say to me right now, even in light of my questions? Help me. Help me love you more. That is so appropriate and necessary and important. You're not a bad Christian just because you have questions about Scripture. That's my point there. Let's look at verse 26. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So in that day, we talked about that, that is once the Holy Spirit comes, once the Holy Spirit comes, they're still going to pray to Jesus when he's gone, even though he's physically gone. And, but how does he follow that up? I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. So Jesus is saying he will not, like some game of telephone, hear the disciples' prayers and then relay those up to the Father. John 14, 9 says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Let me extend that here. If you pray to me, if you, that is, if you pray to Jesus, you simultaneously are praying to the Father. Jesus doesn't need to put in a good word for you as if God was, as if the Father was uh, your hiring manager and you need to get, good, get in good with a job application. You're talking directly to the hiring manager, if you will. And why are you able to do that? Verse 27 tells us, because the Father himself loves you. Now, this talk about Jesus not passing along our prayers, if you will, might make us ask a question about, what about intercession, Alden? Hebrews 7.25 tells me Jesus prays for me constantly. He intercedes for me. How do I connect that? That's a great question. Jesus is praying for us regularly and interceding for us. He just does that because he loves us. That's independent of what we're talking about here. But intercession does not mean what was that, Peter? Oh, okay, yeah, let me, let me talk to the Father. I, I'll put a good word in for you. That's not what intercession is. Intercession is just, Lord, this is Jesus praying, I love them, keep them, I love them, keep them saved, sanctify them. That's how Jesus just can't help but pray because he loves us. Now that's independent of our ability, both are true, to just speak directly to the Father. So, point being, both are true. Jesus is praying for us all the time, and at the same time, this text is telling us we talk directly to the Father because we have a relationship with Jesus. We don't play telephone with God. We don't need a translator with God. We have a relationship with God. We talk straight to Him. And now, why does He love us? It's because, verse 27, we love and believe in Jesus. Verse 27, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So I see love and belief as kind of two like active verbs here. Love, that's kind of like our affections, our, our heart maybe we would say, our, yeah, just desires. And then our belief, that's our, our intellect, maybe our academic orientation. So we need both though. We need to love Jesus and we need to believe in Jesus as well. If we have both things, well then we have right standing with God. Now, I think we also need to be careful, though, of not having one without the other. Sometimes we can lean one way, lean the other way, kind of extremely. 
Maybe that's a temptation for some of us. It's possible to love without right belief, right? It's also possible to have right belief and have no love. An example of believing in Jesus intellectually but not loving him in the Bible is in James. This will be on the screen to my left and right. James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Well, why would the demons shudder? Why would they do that? Because they hate God. Because they know that God exists. They know that they're on the wrong path. They know the Lord is not Lord of their life. If that's you, if you can relate to the demons in that respect, if you know God is real and you are still deliberately disobeying, your fate will be like the demons. Revelation 21.8 says that you'll be thrown with them in an eternal lake of fire and sulfur. Avoid that. Don't just believe that Jesus is real. Love him. Or on the other end, you can have a lot of positive feelings about Jesus. You can love Jesus but you might not actually know who the Bible says he is. I mean, you might say, look, I love him. I pray to him all the time. I pray every day. I give money. I've given my whole life to him. Uh, but he's, he's, not, he's not really God. He, he's a great guy. But uh, he didn't really rise from the dead. That's kind of hard for me to believe like, historically, scientifically. How, how can that happen? The Bible says he is God. Colossians 2.9, Romans 9.5, if you need a reference to look at that. The Bible also says Jesus rose from the dead. That's four chapters from now in John 20, we find that, the resurrection. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. So if you love Jesus, but you don't believe these particular essential truths about him, you don't actually know him. Look at what the Bible says who don't, about people who don't rightly understand God. This is Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Your fate will be the same as the demons. It's good that you love Jesus, but love the real biblical Jesus. So verse 27 explains why does God love us? Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Verse 26, let's skip back up to that. What does Jesus mean when he says, you will ask in my name in light of what we're talking about here? I'm going to take a page out of Jimmy's sermon, metaphorically. There aren't pages in the sermon, but... He, refer, he gives a really helpful example, I think. He's, he made the example of, imagine someone refers you to your superior, and they tell you, hey, tell your superior so-and-so sent you. Now you've been sent to that superior, carrying the relationship with you of the person who sent you as you address that superior. I think in much the same way, you're talking directly to the Father because you love Jesus, carrying relationship with Jesus in his name to the Father. And that's what grants us access to the Father. We pray directly to the Father, carrying Jesus' name. And so Hebrews 4.16 tells us this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's just go to God, our Father, confidently. We have Jesus. Let's look at verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. We touched on this earlier. Jesus entering into the world, this is his death and resurrection. This is the climax of redemptive history. Without this, none of the Bible makes sense. So Jesus came here into this world on a mission, 
And he's seeing the finish line, isn't he? How did he get here, though, before we dig into that? He says, I came from the Father. So he's coming from perfect harmony. He's literally coming from heaven. Talk about having a nice time and then having a not-so-nice time. And, and now I have come into the world. Mike Daling laid out for us very helpfully in his sermon about this, what the world is. And he explained to us, the world refers to this world, this creation, which is specifically opposed to God. So Jesus entered into a realm, our realm, namely, and that realm is opposed to him. That was his mission. He came into that from heaven. And the world was so opposed to him that it killed him. But yet as the world killed him, he accomplished his mission. He says, now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. He's leaving the world by dying, much like all the rest of us will leave this world by dying. And now, he says, now I'm leaving. In two chapters, he's going to be arrested. In three chapters, he's going to be killed. It is now. The time is now. And this is why Jesus' last words on the cross in chapter 19, verse 30 of John are, it is finished. He's looking at the finish line here. His mission was complete. He's heading from the world back to the Father. Something to point out, Jesus is leaving the world permanently changed. Greg Gilbert pointed this out to me at a conference, um, but I hadn't really thought about this for the for, before he told, preached about this. But God the Son was not always a human, was he? I mean, John 1.14, he became flesh. He was not human in eternity past. God the Son was eternally preexistent. He didn't have a start date or something like that. But the time that he put on human flesh, he became a human, something that it, it wasn't before. And from then on, he'll always be human. Where am I coming from there? Let's look at Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Context here is that Jesus has just ascended from earth into heaven. The disciples are wondering, what do we do now? And some angels show up and they tell the disciples this, Acts 1, 11. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the idea here is he came up as a human, and so presumably he's going to come down that way. Another text, I have three of them. This is the second one. Philippians 3.21. Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And so the logic goes something like this. Our bodies are going to be transformed like his. Okay. Well, our bodies are going to be human, and so Jesus' body is going to be human when we get to heaven. The last verse, 1 Timothy 2.5. Paul refers to Jesus as, quote, the man, Jesus Christ, the time that he's penning 1 Timothy. Yet Jesus has already resurrected and ascended by the time of Paul's writing. Jesus was still a human when, when Paul was writing 1 Timothy. Jesus is still a human right now, and he always will be. This was not a reversible decision. It certainly doesn't seem like. Jesus took on humanity permanently to achieve your salvation. That is so much love. Let's take a step back. That is so much love to be so willing to help us that his eternity is affected by it. Jesus is a loving God. And it's because Jesus accomplished his mission in this world that when it's our time, we can follow him to the Father. And when we do, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 tells us, and so we will always be with the Lord. Verses 29 and 30. Let's look at the disciples' response. His disciples said, Ah, 
Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So I mentioned this earlier, but the disciples misunderstand Jesus here. Jesus just said the hour is coming, and it'll be, verse 26, in that day. So it's a future day, not the present day. But the disciples think, uh, now, you're speaking clearly. They think he's saying, uh, talking about right now. Verse 30, now we know. They think he's talking about the present moment. Now, it's hard, for me, it's hard to know why the disciples think this is a change of speaking style for Jesus, particularly because everything that Jesus is saying here in our sermon text is pretty much a repetition of what Jesus already plainly said. So I think they're kind of speaking without reason, and Jesus pushes against them as well, so I think that's affirming what I'm thinking. Look at verse 25. Jesus has already told them that the Holy Spirit would clarify his words to them. That's chapter 14, 22, 14, 25, 26, chapter 16, 12, and 13. Now let's look at our verse 26. Jesus has taught on praying in his name already. That's chapter 14, verse 13, chapter 15, verse 16. So that's not new. Verse 27, maybe this is a little new, but... John chapter 14, verse 9 says that I and the Father are one. If you've seen one, you've seen us both. So really, by extension, if you pray to one, you've prayed to both. That's not a super big leap. And then verse 28, I am going to the Father, just straight up is quoted several times. Chapter 14, 12, 14, 28, 16, 17. My point being, Jesus is not giving super duper new information. And he's not speaking any more clearly than he has been for the whole upper room discourse. So I think the disciples are jumping the gun here. But now, verse 30 is pretty encouraging on its face, right? Now we know you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. I mean, if somebody that I was mentoring in the faith said this about Jesus, I'd be pumped. But Jesus knows more information than I do about particularly people's hearts, their hearts in particular. Look at how Jesus responds, verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? He's contesting them. You guys don't really believe right now. That's a little disheartening, don't you think? Verse 32, behold, he continues, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Now that's really disheartening. Okay, you guys are going to abandon me. Imagine hearing that. You're going to leave me alone. You followed him for years. That would cut me. They don't know how quickly this is going to happen, but in two chapters, they're going to run away from Jesus. They're going to be scattered, as our text says, and they're going to leave him alone. Now, Peter and John, specifically, we know they come back and follow Jesus at a distance, following him to the high priest in chapter 18, verse 20. But still, in between those events, they fled. They abandoned Jesus. But what does Jesus say? Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Let's take a moment to think about that seriously. Put, put our, let's put ourselves in this situation. You're about to be arrested, tortured, and killed. You have all of your best friends with you. You've done life with them for years. They've promised to never leave you. They've done that a number of times. They've promised they'll always be by your side. You've lived with them. You've ate with them. You've cried with them. You've gone traveling with them. You've been part of each other's family dynamics. And the moment before you get arrested, tortured, and killed, they abandon you all at the same time. They scatter. They run away. That would probably be the scariest moment of my life. I imagine that would be the same for you. I'd be terrified. I mean, we might panic, we might sob, we might have an anxiety attack, feel desperate and helpless and hopeless and feel like our heart was ripped out of our body. I don't think that's dramatic. Some of you might actually feel this way. 
right now. Lonely, abandoned, panicked, a combination of the three. But even there, let's, let's take a look at Jesus. He was so content. Jesus has peace about being abandoned and left alone. His relationship with the Father was enough for him. He is satisfied to only have God, yet I'm not alone, for the Father's with me. I'm fine. That's amazing. If you're in a similar place as Jesus, maybe you have been abandoned, maybe you're lonely, maybe you're panicked. I bet you those were things Jesus was feeling. What Jesus experienced, his contentedness with the Father, is accessible to you. I hope you know that and really do believe that. Now look, I, I don't want you to be in the same position as Jesus, uh, about to die, murdered, tortured, abandoned by your best friend. That is undesirable. I, I don't think anybody should like, just like, look for that in life. That, that's not what I'm saying. But if it happens to you, this is what I'm saying. Ultimately, if that happened to you, would you be okay? Only you can answer that question. You don't have to answer out loud. I don't really want to hear that right now. But for, for yourself, not, not that I don't care about you. You can talk to me after. I, I love you. But anyway, would you be okay? Would you? Would you be content? Are you content right now, even, as a matter of fact? If you do not feel content, as I'm sure a lot of us don't, what is it that we want? What is it that you want? What would make you content? What do you think? Jesus shows us that real contentment comes only from being in relationship with God. Look at the contrast here between the faithlessness of the disciples and the faithfulness of the Father. Man, if you are a victim of abandonment, I hope this is encouraging to you. I hope you know that God doesn't do that. Your friends will fail. Your family will fail. But God will never do that, even though he knows what it is to be abandoned. He's been more abandoned than we have. This is an often quoted verse, and it's relevant here. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. It's on the screens to my left and right. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money. That's a specific thing, but then it gets more general. And be content with what you have. Why? Why should I be content? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The reason we don't need more money in Hebrews here, the reason we don't need faithful friends in John 16, as wonderful as those things are, is because God will never abandon us. He is our perfect, eternal, unchanging friend. He is our perfect, eternal, unchanging provider. He is our perfect, eternal, unchanging everything. We can be confident in him and we can be content in him because he is all we need something worth noticing this is a bit of an aside but something that i think is timely for us this morning look at the way that the disciples separated from christ and then inadvertently separated from each other verse 32 you will be scattered but then here it is each to his own home and will leave me alone. They are not leaving together as a unified group. They are each leaving separately. Their fellowship, at least briefly, will be broken when they abandon Jesus, will be broken with one another. Later they come back together, they hang out in a room, Jesus comes to them, all that stuff, that's great, but that's later. For now, their abandoning Jesus produced isolation, not just between them as individuals and Jesus, but isolation with each other as well. I don't think they expected that when they left Jesus alone, that they'd end up leaving each other alone as well. I doubt that was part of their thought. 
Now the point I want to make here is when we abandon one person, when we leave someone alone, if you will, it hurts everyone that we're connected to, doesn't it? We become isolated from others, even when just isolating with one person, even if we don't intend it. That's just the nature of isolation. It propagates through a community. So what I'm trying to say is let's, Mercy House, let's us be a church that sticks together, presses in with one another, even when that's really difficult. And of course it is difficult. It would have been difficult then. Both for the good of our individual one-on-one friendships, relationships, fellowship with each other, and for the good of the whole church that's connected together. Let's not leave each other alone. Let's not abandon each other. Let's not each go to our own home as they did. Let's commit to actively loving each other. And so I want to encourage you, if you are ostracized from someone, especially someone in our church, I want to challenge you to pray how you might reconcile with them. I know that a lot of these hurts and things can be really hard and long-term and take years even sometimes to heal from and reconcile with. I, I hope you hear me honoring that. But I also hope you hear me pushing. Pray. Take a, take a step. Ask God how you might not leave them alone. Ask God how you might reconcile. It might not be your fault. It might be both your fault. Whatever. Ask God what you can do. You're here. Otherwise, we will each be driven further and further apart from each other. Plus, God calls us to unity and love. That's glorious. Let's attain that. Let's take that, Mercy House. He died for that. Let's do it. Verse 33, our last verse. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. How is it that the disciples can have peace? Because Jesus is giving himself to them. When they have him, they can be content. They can be at peace. Now, they aren't content with him yet, are they? They're about to flee. They're about to scatter. They're about to abandon him. So they're not content to only have Jesus right now. They're not. But they will be later once they fully embrace Christ after his resurrection and establish the church. So this peace comes from having contentment in Jesus alone. And finally, we have this awesome victorious statement. Look at this. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Isn't that epic? Before we get into the particulars of this statement though, I want to zoom out to the whole upper room discourse that we've been studying this summer. Because there's a lot of similarity between the opening of the upper room discourse and the closing, the verses that we're reading now, especially verses 29 to 33. So if you came to our teaching and preaching workshop a couple months ago, you might remember that something we were talking about is when the opening of a section is similar to the closing, the text in between the opening and closing is a support to what the opening and closing is saying. The whole text is about this stuff, okay? So when we have something like an opening and closing that's similar, we want to pay attention because what's in between supports this argument. And so here we are, we're there. The opening and closing of the Upper Room Discourse is here, and this is what it is. I'm going to read the opening right now. Chapter 13 of John, this will be on the screens, going until verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1. Verse 37, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Verse 38, Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Similar, isn't it? And then here it is. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Look at the parallels here. First of all, there's several. Jesus says he's leaving in both passages. That's how the passages open up. And then in the first passage with Peter and the second one with the disciples, both give overly confident statements about their commitment to Jesus. Jesus follows that up by questioning their commitment and then by predicting that both Peter and the disciples are going to fail to live up to that commitment. And then Jesus tells them to take heart. That is the whole purpose of the upper room discourse. So that being the case, here's a summary of our sermons from the upper room discourse through that lens. Here we go. I preach the opening sermon, chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Summary, our destination is God himself. So our hearts don't need to be troubled by the tribulation of this world. Corey preached the next one, chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. Summary, God himself is better than life itself, so we will be all right. In other words, take heart, because the one thing we need is the one thing that is guaranteed. Jake Blackwood preached chapter 14, verses 25 to 31. Summary, the Holy Spirit is going to teach you everything you need to know. Even though Satan rules this world temporarily, take heart. Because through the Holy Spirit, Jesus will always be with you. Tommy preached chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Summary, as we abide in Jesus, he prunes us. That's tribulation. That hurts. But the result of that pruning is greater fruit that we grow for God. And what's it all for? It's for our joy. So take heart. Jimmy preached on chapter 15, verses 12 to 17. Summary, Jesus says, love one another. I initiated this relationship with you. I have made you my friends. And it's because I love you perfectly that you'll be equipped to follow this command. So take heart. Mike Daling preached on chapter 15, verses 18 to 27. Summary, the world hates you because you love Jesus. That's tribulation. But take heart. Soon you'll be taken out of this world to be with Jesus. And in the meanwhile, the Holy Spirit is with you and will help you witness to this world that hates you. Corey preached chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. Summary, you will be persecuted. You may even die for your faith. That's tribulation. But in the same way that having the Holy Spirit is, is better than having Jesus physically in the world, so also having the Holy Spirit as a believer is better than life itself. This is worth dying for. The real hope that we have, hope, in other words, take heart, is that we have eternity with Jesus. Garrett preached last week on chapter 16, verses 16 to 24. Summary, as a woman suffers in labor, yet has joy in having a child, so we suffer, that's tribulation, and through that suffering, God gives birth to our salvation, so take heart. And now I'm preaching this, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the upper room discourse. This is our life with God. This is what our walk with God is. There is no problem too great for God to solve. We have problems. They're all solvable, all of them, even the ones we think are impossible. Literally nothing is impossible with God. We are not dealing with a God who's unable. Sometimes in his wisdom, he chooses to permit that our suffering would continue, but he's not overwhelmed by it. He could conquer it. He is using it for his purpose in you, to bring something beautiful about in you. These things that we feel like overcome us, and they do overcome us, don't they? Jesus overcame these things. Here's a short list of worldly things that overcome us all the time that did not overcome Jesus. 
battles with loneliness, abandonment, frustration, depression, anxiety, anger, hurt, confusion, impatience, temptations to sin, suffering brought upon your, that you bring upon yourself, suffering that others bring upon you, suffering that's just there and it's no one's fault in particular. In the world you will have tribulation, we will. Jesus, though, of all people, can say that. Many of us have endured much suffering, much tribulation in this life. But none of us have experienced the unbridled, undiluted wrath of God for all the sins of the world. None of us have suffered that much. That is literally unbearable. We would be disintegrated. Many of us, though, have had a taste of it. Many, many people here have had very hard lives. I know that. Harder lives than I have. But none of us have taken God's pure punishment for every sin. Only Jesus did that. And he overcame. He took more tribulation than anyone ever will. And he overcame the tribulations of this world. So if you're a Christian, this Jesus is living in you. He's alive in you. We just sang that. Jesus is alive. Wow. The Holy Spirit is inside of you, working in you, equipping you to fight this difficult, yes, difficult, but this fight of faith he equips you for. He overcame the world. He can overcome the world in you. When the disciples faced persecution at Jesus' arrest, they ran away. But now that we, we have a different situation. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We don't have to run away. We can be emboldened. We can take heart and we can resolve in a situation like theirs to stand with Jesus rather than run away from him. And as you stand with Jesus, you will have suffering. You will. There will be some suffering you have because you stand with Jesus. But if Jesus really is enough for you, if Jesus really is enough for me, if he's enough for us, then our suffering, this tribulation, doesn't need to end right now. We can hold on. We can take it. It'll end soon. We won't live forever on earth. We'll get to heaven. There's no suffering there. But the point is that while you suffer on earth, you have Jesus. You're also going to have him in heaven. But the best part of heaven is already here for you. There's no greater joy than having Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you have him. You have this joy. If you're not a Christian, you don't have him. Maybe you're thinking about him. I just want to tell you, I want to invite you. He is so worth having. There's plenty of Christians in this room that would love to talk to you and testify from their experience of how worth it Jesus is. He's worth losing everything for. Have you ever met someone who's so willing to change themselves for you that they will determine their eternity for you? You haven't. The best that someone could do for you is change themselves for the rest of their life because beyond their death, they can't do anything. But Jesus can, and Jesus does, and Jesus did, and he invites you today to follow him. He invites you, whether you're a Christian or not, he invites you to take heart in your tribulation. And if you're not a Christian, the way that you're going to take heart in tribulation, if you will, is by becoming a Christian and following him because he has overcome the world. He invites you to let him overcome the world for you. Now that does not mean that he'll definitely take away your suffering. It doesn't necessarily mean that. He might maintain your suffering, he might bring more. But I can tell you what it definitely does mean. It definitely does mean that he will give himself to you in your suffering. That's why we're about to sing these lyrics. Riches I heed not, nor vain empty praise. I don't need stuff. Thou, that's old 
language for you, Jesus. Thou, Jesus, mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Jesus, you're enough for me. I have you. We're about to sing that. The joy of knowing Jesus is worth it all. How awesome, how awesome to know God, the God who created all the universe with all that power and yet would love me enough to come down, live a humble human life, die on a cross for me just so that I could be with him for eternity and enjoy him forever. And it's because Jesus did that that we take communion each week. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We remember him fulfilling his mission for us by dying for us when we take communion. We take communion each week. That's how we got saved. That's, if you're not a Christian, how you will get saved, believing in Jesus' death for your sake. We can't do anything to earn that. Jesus accomplished it for us by overcoming the world. Jesus is awesome. Jesus is loving. And Jesus is God. And he is worth having. In a few moments, we're going to take communion. The way that we do that here is we're going to form two lines down these aisles. People are going to hand the bread and the cup to us, and then we'll walk back around, wrap around, and go back to our seats. I should say communion is only for Christians. Um, if you're not a Christian, we're really, really glad you're here. I hope you feel welcomed here. And during this time, I want to encourage you to pray, think about what you're hearing, go to the back, talk to someone if you have questions. That's what they're there for. They're there to talk and to pray if you need to. And prayer, that's for everybody, whether you're a Christian or not. We'd love to pray for you. But communion is for Christians who have accepted Christ's sacrifice for them. So that being said, let's pray, and then we'll take communion. Lord, thank you for overcoming the world. Thank you that as we get discouraged by our inability to overcome the world, we can look to you and we can take heart and know that you have. So in our suffering, God, and we do suffer, a lot of us suffer in a lot of more ways than I understand, God. But I also don't need to totally understand the nuance of that, to know that you're God and you're able to help and you're able to redeem. You're able to overcome because you did. You overcame sin and death. You can overcome our problems. And Lord, I pray that we would take a hold of you uh, in a new way this morning.